0: Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Veni, 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 veni veni, 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 veni Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, um, if you've been listening to our program for a while, you've probably heard us make. Perhaps cryptic, skeptical remarks about the British Museum. And. What? What? I know. And the problem is. Shocking. I was thinking about it this morning that the quintessential movie of our time about the Middle Ages is, of course, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, 100%. And it begins with this long set piece (laughs) of young Indy trying to reclaim an item saying it belongs in a museum. Yes. And oh. at the time yes. I mean like the what he's really saying is like as opposed to being in a private collection.
1: Yes, which I think we can all agree things should be available to the public and not just squirrelled away by private rich hoarders.
0: Right. I think we've Um, talked a couple of times about, like, there are manuscripts, very old manuscripts that are held privately that you, you know, you have to make appointments to see them or maybe you can't see them. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, troublesome if you're trying to study that. Right. But Indiana Jones also has a certain myth of, like, the artifact that is abandoned by its people and no longer has... As though they no longer want world. it. Yes. Yeah. Nobody wants <laughs> yes. it, uh, yes. except clearly Indy wants it, and right. That other and guy usually wants a Nazi. It.
1: Usually the Nazis yes, want
0: it. Too. The Nazis yeah. want it. So, yes. but so right now, I guess the a lot of the attitudes are changing. I won't say yep. like everybody's attitude is changing because this has become a a thing that people talk about. Yes. Um. But like we don't always think it belongs in a museum. And even when it did belong in a museum, maybe it doesn't belong in the British Museum.
1: Right. I think we should clarify when we say doesn't belong in a museum, that is to say, for example, if there is a temple somewhere that is still in use, (laughs) then maybe something belongs back in that temple, but that hopefully it is a place where, like, people are allowed in, for example. Mm -hmm. And you might still consider it a museum. I mean, there are a lot of places that are both active sites of worship, right, synagogues, churches, cathedrals, etc., uh, mosques, but do also allow in tourists at certain times to see things because they're old and beautiful.
0: Yes, right? um, there, there's some great Wats in Bangkok, for example, that yes. I've been to. You can go Absolutely. see the Emerald Buddha at the actual, like, the watt that's sort of adjacent to the palace,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and it's a beautiful piece, and Actually one that I, you know, I was thinking about it, like, why isn't it in the British Museum? Probably right. because it was actively being used for so well, long.
1: Well, actively being used and so they managed to protect it.
0: Yeah, the British didn't quite get into right. Thailand the way they did into a lot of the yeah. rest of I think the, the question there is
1: probably, why isn't it in the Louvre? And the answer is because someone managed to protect it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean,
0: like, France also didn't get their hooks into Thailand. They were very fond... Of the fact they that got they a were little bit, though. Free. Yes.
1: Well, okay, so the, they got Cambodia, I guess. Yes. The French um, got
0: everything else. There's this very yes. famous poster of like a the rest of Southeast Asia as like a mouth that's about to eat Thailand. Yes. Yes. Um, um, it is actually
1: worth pointing out what you just said. I literally just read an article we'll post to it, but the Met, anyone can Google this, the Met in New York. <laughs> has recently been forced to send back a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. to places because um, they didn't, oh gosh, they were founded in like, uh uh-oh, 1870 or something? Very late compared to other museums, (laughs) like the Louvre and the British Museum. Yes. And so they called their, well, they didn't, I suppose, but they had what one might call euphemistically aggressive collection techniques.
0: Uh, trying to catch um, up.
1: Yes, in an attempt to catch up. And this is the other problem. So when Indy says that something belongs to the museum, now we want to acknowledge, of course, he's still a white guy, obviously taking people's stuff. But, <laughs> but of course, the other thing, in addition to the idea that it should have public access, right? So if he puts it in a museum, it should be in a museum in that country. Yeah. And he doesn't need to take it back. You know, of course, he always takes things back to the U.S. Or tries to. Um, But the other thing about saying it should be in a museum, or at least available to the public, right, wherever it is, is that that also means it's not part of the market for antiquities. Mm -hmm. And the problem, of course, with the market for antiquities is that it is incredibly corrupt, (laughs) Um, like most places where there's a lot of money to be made there's a lot of fraud um and fraud both in the sense of actual fakes so you know there are various estimates but like museums worldwide that most big museums at least a small percentage of their collections is probably fakes forgeries replicas stuff like that um you run into different weird stuff that we may have mentioned before a little bit that sometimes forgeries and replicas are made by people who end up becoming famous in their own right. (laughs) And then that puts in a different weird wrinkle. But anyway, so that's one side. The other side of course, is that things get looted. So there's a huge illegal trade, a black market. Um, And the problem is of course, people with money will buy stuff. So I think it's, it's very well known in certain instances, like ivory, right? Ban The ivory trade hasn't just been banned. You also cannot buy anything made of ivory that is less than, like, 100 years old or something. Yeah. Right? You have to be able to prove how old it is. Otherwise, it's illegal to buy it. Because, obviously... Otherwise, people just keep slaughtering elephants and making things with ivory and say, Oh, well, but I just found this. You know?
0: Mm-hmm. Nope,
1: you can't do that. So, um... But obviously, people with money, they still want stuff, so it still happens. There's a huge black market. And yeah. recently, and by recently, we mean sort of the last 30, 40 years, really the 30 um, years, there started to be a sort of growing attempt to stop this. Mm-hmm. And the past sort of 20 years, and then especially the past 10 years, they've really been stepping up, and by they, sort of Interpol and stuff, stepping up um, prosecution. Yeah. where they will actually take people to court and take their stuff. <laughs> and then, of course, not only do you take their stuff, but also then you're not allowed to keep buying. And if it's found out you keep purchasing stuff, then you can get in trouble. Hmm. Um, I didn't know so about that, that that's, part. That's good. Yeah. Well, you know, collectors don't let it get that far. The rich the rich people who are collecting don't let it get that mm-hmm. far. They Usually they return stuff, they apologize. If they do have to get taken to court, they'll eventually make a deal yeah right, because they want to be able to keep collecting, but uh dealers absolutely have been getting prosecuted a lot you know then you can't so mm-hmm. there's certain people that you can't buy anymore from those people, right yeah those people they're not allowed to deal, you can't buy from them and yeah if you if it's found out you have again, then you get in trouble mm-hmm. um but one of the things that that has led to is the more dealers you prosecute the more dealers you prosecute. Right, So they're basically Mm. starting to really prosecute the trade networks that have led this. And the Met has run into a lot of this recently because, of course, that's how they got a lot of their collection. Yeah, (laughs) And um, they actually recently, one of the things they might have, well, that they're going to have to send back at some point. I'm not sure if they already, if it's already in a batch they've sent back or if it's (laughs) going to be in a future batch. But um, it was actually a statue in... Um, and basically that's exactly what happened. The statue was, like, at a shrine that was in use mm-hmm. <laughs> daily by the people of the village until about 30 years ago or something. Yeah. Um, This statue disappeared.
0: This happens a lot, I think, during times <laughs> of political upheaval. I remember yes. seeing articles about, um, maybe the Met getting in trouble probably 10 years ago for a Cambodian... Artifacts um, that would have like come out yes. during the Khmer Rouge, and yes. then also more recently, things not the Met but other people, the Hobby Lobby people got in a lot of trouble for importing oh, illegal God. Gilgamesh
1: for their museum. Tablets. Yes, they had to send they had to send a ton of yeah. stuff back. I think the museum is now closed. Yeah, things. I'm not that sure that if it's closed,
0: out, but yeah. Um, during the mm-hmm. upheaval in Iraq, uh, around the Nine Eleven, that, that the second Iraq War, are we calling it now? Um, yeah, probably. And then the Islamic State also like would sell artifacts on the black market yes. as yeah. a way of funding their activities. Mm-hmm. So
1: absolutely, yeah. I also want to say, by the way, this article, um, The Guardian, has an article about this. Um, New York's Met Museum sees reputation erode over collection practices. Um, it was published in in 2023 it was updated march 30th 2023 that's very um but this was a village in nepal okay yeah their statue just disappeared yeah (laughs) um not hilarious but you know this is how colonialists do anyway it so it disappeared and um you know it was carved a thousand years ago statue of um vishnu and they were kind of like where did it go (laughs) and so um they would look online, you know, it disappeared in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would look online and they would see whatever. Um, about a decade after, it's, th- so I guess in the early 90s, um, an American collector donated the statue to the Met. Okay. And it was there for the next 30 years. Obviously, this article is just written. So, yeah. And then, um, some, I, I guess like an anonymous Facebook account identified it and called the Lost Arts of Nepal in wow.
0: 2021.
1: Um, yeah, so it's an anonymous account, anonim- an anonymous account, the Lost Arts of Nepal. <laughs> but it's clearly an account that, like, this is what they do. They look for these things,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they find them, and they post about them. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so the Met, that's, <laughs> how you know, it sort of got on people's radar where the Met got the statue. Um, and that's obviously just sort of one one example. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but that is literally, right, so that idea of, um, you know, things should be somewhere where people have access. Um, obviously, you shouldn't be stealing it from, <laughs> but not just that people should have access, but the other thing that the whole sort of aspect of private collectors is deeply troubling. Mm-hmm. And museums will sometimes put on exhibitions based on their trustees or their boards or whoever based on these people's collections. Yeah. The, which is of course kind of a huge conflict of interest and so many other things, but this can also be one of the times when people start to realize just how much these people have that has been stolen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So you said there's a, there is a collector who actually, when it was, he got tagged through a dealer who'd been looting a lot of stuff they sort of went to this guy and were like, we know at least a bunch of your collection was looted. And he ended up sending the whole thing back to Cambodia. Oh.
0: Well, there you go. Um, that does not always happen. We should say that. No. <laughs> well, I mean, like, the obvious counterexample is the Elgin Marbles. Yes. Elgin, Elgin Marbles. Sorry. Elgin is yes. a very it's respectable the city, in city in northern Illinois. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Where Jim Gaffigan is from, I believe. Uh, and our own Jesse News, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Um. Um, but yeah.
1: Uh, so yes, the Elgin marbles, of course, um, famously alluded. The British to have them. Greece.
0: Yeah. Yes. The Greeks. Yes. would Lord Elgin like them to be fair.
1: Yes, hundred um, percent. And not only that, but there is also some big controversy about the extent to which, in the early nineteen hundreds the sort of British quote-unquote attempts to preserve or clean the statues may have damaged them somewhat. Yes. Because um, they, they basically whitened them. We've talked about whitewashing, literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Greek statues, of course, would have been painted bright colors. In the quote-unquote restoration, they whitened them, you know. so they mm-hmm. And you sort of, you know, bristles and this and that, and definitely did some damage. Um, and also <laughs> they're not supposed to be White. That's a different problem. Related. But, um... But yes. And so now they don't want to give them back. Of course, um... We should point out, quickly, when it comes to the British Museum, um, there's some great memes that I think we've actually perhaps talked about before. There's one that shows kind of... It looks like the empty inside like of a warehouse. And it says the British Museum after it's been decolonized. (laughs) (laughs) Um... But, yes. Um, basically... In 1963, uh, the British government passed an act that was the British Museum Act, I guess, of 1963, mm-hmm. and that sort of said like they can't give anything away that that has value. Um, wow. and then another act, yeah. <laughs> then the National Heritage Act was passed in 1983 mm-hmm. that basically stopped other museums from repatriating stuff. However, exceptions have been made. So it's like in 2004, an exception was made that said museums can return human remains.
0: Okay. Which That's obviously good. is
1: a sort of hugely problematic thing around the world, um, that museums in the West have a lot of remains that they should yeah. not have of peoples who are generally not Western, um, or sometimes are, but are indigenous. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So museums should give people back, uh, sergey bartman of course who was in france is probably the most one of the most oh, famous. she's still examples.
0: in france oh my god no 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 oh. no
1: they repaid they, oh yeah, okay they sent her home they sent her home okay but um but recently you know so um but that's why you know <laughs> so that that is a thing um and then uh basically they also that was sort of you know so they did pass that, I guess, in 2004 that you... And this is, again, this is England mm-hmm. specifically. So this doesn't... You know, no other museum in the world can use these laws as a...
0: Right. The Louvre um, has to fight its own battles.
1: Right. Right. Um, but that... That is specific. Uh, but, yeah, she was... Sergei Bartman was repatriated in 2002. Oh, my God. Um, although, okay. I want to... I do want to be fair about this. Um the museum had both her body this is the museum of man in in france and they had both her body and a cast they had made of her body they repatriated her but they said they lost the cast which Mm. is a big eye roll as far as i'm concerned right so probably they still have that um but but her actual yes yeah they, so
0: they did some back. Um, Just for context, um, Sarchi, or Sarah Bartman, was a woman who was sort of exhibited as a... Do we still call them freak shows? She was from, like, yes, South absolutely. Africa. Yes. And um, she, she... She was known as the hot and tot yeah. Venus. Yes, she, because she had a large... She had a Behind. large butt. Yes. I mean...
1: And this is actually... Yeah. So a quick side note, first of all, Susan Lloyd Parks has a brilliant play called Venus. It is amazing. <laughs> so that's first. Um but secondly, um yes, this goes to a stereotype that has been around for hundreds of years about um people of African descent and that and particularly women and the sort of sexualization of women, the simultaneous sexualization and desexualization. Of women of African descent. And, um, this is seen in, for example, mammy stereotypes. The mammy stereotype Mm -hmm. is, right, the sense of an enslaved woman who is desexualized, but precisely because she has had and cares for so many children, but particularly children, of course, who are not her own, like the white, you know, plantation children. Um, Plantation owner children. Um, So that's one. Um, And then the sort of flip side, of course, is the extreme sexualization, um, which is, of course, right, leads into rape narratives, of course, about about slavery. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is something that these two stereotypes exist side by side, right? So on the one hand, um, the stereotypes of the mammy, and on the other hand, the very sexualized stereotypes of of women of African descent um, as though they're there to have the children of white men. Mm -hmm. Uh, Despite of course there being tremendous um, prejudice against mixed race children who would also have been enslaved, of course, and so on. Um, So these stereotypes are still with us, right? There are, and they are still a huge part of society. So I have to say, I have a tote bag that says I love big books and I cannot lie. (laughs) This is, of course, a play on Sir Mix-a-Lot's song. I love big butts and I cannot lie. Um, It is something that is, it has been both sort of reclaimed in some ways by the African-American community, but is still a problem, definitely, when it comes to racist portrayals. Um, The idea of sort of enhancing certain features on women of African descent. For example, the behind. Um, and there's some famous photos. Susan Lee Parks actually also has an essay where she talks about this, and there's some other essays about this as well. Because there's some famous photos um, that Kim Kardashian then recreated. Oh, no. <laughs> Kardashian, of course, not of African descent. No. But playing into that stereotype of kind of ethnic ambiguity. hmm Um and recreated some of these some of these photos. Um, one where she has a champagne glass
0: Yeah, I remember those. On her
1: body and she's popping the champagne and it sort of goes over her.
0: Mm-hmm. Um Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's a recreation of um the original an original photo. Mm-hmm. Um that, um, was taken, I think, by Jean-Paul Goud um, in, oh, some decades ago. (laughs) Um, yeah. But so Venus, um, that photo, right, today is just a reminder of sort of how long this stereotype has been around. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the things about Venus, absolutely, um, was the idea that she had sort of this very kind of sensual, but also exoticized, fetishized, but also sort of grotesque um, feature,
0: right? That her behind was very large. Um, I just wanted to add that she did, like the time period we're talking about, she was about 1789 to 1815. Yes. So the fact that they repatriated her remains in 2002 is...
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, not great. Not great. great. Obviously. 100%.
0: Yes.
1: Yes. And, um, yeah, that's, (laughs) Um, you know, I mean, yeah, it's a sort of interesting reminder. I want to also give a shout out. Carol Walker has this brilliant installation she did um, that became known as the Sugar Sphinx. Oh yeah.
0: Okay.
1: And the Marvelous Sugar Baby. And it's a sort of Sphinx figure that also is very much a sort of critique of the mammy stereotype and the over-sexualization and desexualizations simultaneously of African-American women specifically. I know I keep saying sort of women of African descent, and that is of course a reminder that even though that this is not specific to the Americas, right? (laughs) This is sort of a Western European thing that exists. um, And even beyond, honestly, I mean, Mm -hmm. this is a racist trope that has really spread the globe. Um, But yeah, the original good photo, I think was in 1976. Um, and depicted a Dominican model and actress, Carolina Beaumont. Um, and yeah, and of course is, I mean, the original was also problematic. <laughs> um, and he, he was problematic in a lot of ways and took some really problematic photos of his partner for a long time, uh, Grace Jones, what? Anyway,
0: oh, Grace Jones. That Grace Jones. Okay.
1: Yes, yes, was Good's partner for a long time. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right here. Um, but yeah, he took some very problematic photos of her and had a very unfortunate title for his book that featured a lot of those photos. Anyway. Okay. Um. Well, it's sort of a big mess. But that's so that's Venus. Yeah. Yeah. So um. Yes, and that's that's sort of this final problem of. Um, on the one hand, (laughs) collectors can be terrible because of the way they drive looting and the sort of market for these things, but museums can also be terrible because of the ways they can, they not just can, but they absolutely do, um, institutionalize narratives of white supremacy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) colonialism, Western supremacy, all of these things. Um... And sometimes even in ways we might not realize. So a great example is um, the Venus de Milo. Of course, beautiful, seen as this sort of gorgeous statue. Um, it's in the
0: Louvre. Um, it you is. Seen it? <laughs> yes, it is not in Greece. It is not. I wouldn't say, like, I think my blue. favorite was the Winged Victory, but it's a good statue. That's fair. It is a good statue, absolutely. Um, and
1: Venus, of course is Roman, I mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, she would actually have been Aphrodite of Melos, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, Greek, colonistic. Um, but she's missing her arms. Right. And of course, we don't really think about that. I mean, you know, it's an old statue. Like, well, mm-hmm. they broke off. Lots of but, statues are incomplete. I mean, yes. But if you think of a human being who might be a woman who looked exactly like her but didn't have their arms, we would not consider that person to have the perfect physical body. Mm-hmm. We would consider that person to have a disability, right? Mm-hmm. Much like Venus, a few hundred years ago, that person would have been in sort of a sideshow or something like that. Um, not even a few hundred. I mean, a hundred years ago, even. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a way in which we don't even necessarily recognize sometimes how museums can reinforce these narratives. Um, and obviously also, of course, the fact that all these statues are presented as white when they would not have been white. (laughs) Obviously we should not repaint them, (laughs) but we should put up pictures next to them showing what they would have looked like, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so that the whiteness sort of gets taken away, right? That's a false narrative. Um, So there are a lot of things about the ways in which museums present objects out of context, um, and sometimes not just out of context, but also without even really thinking about what the context might be.
0: Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, I mean, like, I think that this is one of the things we wanted to talk about is the way that a museum's captions can contextualize or decontextualize Um, The things that they reference, and also in this case, because this is a very recent scandal we're going to talk about, the actual text in the caption can be appropriative in its own Mm -hmm. way. Yep. Um, So, if you follow, I don't know what you would call it, like translation Twitter, or (laughs) (laughs) I found out about it because... Because translators are adjacent yes. to bookish people, and I'm sort of bookishly adjacent. Um, mm-hmm. There was a recent case of um, a translator, uh, she they um, Yilin Wang. Oh, now I've closed all my articles. Okay. Yes. Um, who translated? She translated. Um, yes. Chu Jin's poetry. Yes, Chu Jin. Being a Chinese poet. Um, Who's awesome badass. Yes. <laughs> the poem was called A River of Crimson. And the museum used uh, her translation of it in a caption. Without crediting her as the translator. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing about translation. That I did not Grasp as a layperson, before I studied translation, um, is that it's not just a mechanical process. Um, I know a lot of people read things in translation, but it's almost always only one translation of a thing, right? So I don't think most people have, for example, a favorite translation of the Odyssey or... Have read multiple translations of Gilgamesh or something like that, right? That where you would Mm -hmm. be able to compare across versions um, the way that people translated certain words. Um, There's like a very recent translation of the Odyssey by uh, a woman um, named Emily, actually. I should get her full Mm. name. That brought out like some of the sexism that had been baked into it by previous male translators.
1: Yeah. Emily Wilson?
0: Yes, Emily Wilson. Um, and so, like, that that maybe the Bible is the one thing that people have maybe read multiple translations of. But also maybe not, But right? also maybe it's, not, right? It's like, sort
1: of the problem. Like, the Bible says this, and they're usually quoting it in English or whatever vernacular language, and you're like, well... Right. Sort of,
0: <laughs> yes. And <laughs> one not, version they, says that. Yeah. They have like their one, the one version that they like, right? And yeah. so, like the the thing about words is that they can have a lot of meanings, and that yes. old words you sort of figure out uh, what the meanings were based on the context in which they were used. Um, sometimes. I had a very interesting conversation with somebody about whether the a radical that in modern Chinese is usually used to mean child, whether it used to also mean son, in in the sense of male child exclusively. So, right, right. And that like, it, it's actually a very hard question to answer when all you have is like the context in which it appears. Um, so you. Basically what I mean is that, like, somebody's individual translation is their individual choices baked into it. And you can't just take that text and use it unattributed the way that you would, um, you know, something by anonymous poet. I guess you still attribute it to anonymous, but, you know. that mm-hmm. is it's copyright well, infringement. Yeah. Even though we sometimes have this sense that, like, oh you translated a thing and Google Translate can translate a thing, so, like, what's the big deal? Well, it's not just that.
1: I mean, obviously, also, like, you might say this thing was written um, in, you know, more than 100 years ago, basically, yes. right? Which is sort of copyright. Um, so, uh, Chujin is, you know, late 19th century, mm-hmm. basically. Um, sort of 1875 to 1907, dies young because she's executed for being part of an uprising, so she's sort of this martyr for like feminism and things. She's very interesting. Um, And, of course, that would be out of copyright. So if you quote her directly, in theory, there is no copyright. But a translation that was done after, I guess, 1924, well, 1924 after, um, is quite possibly still in copyright. Yes. And consequently (laughs) needs to be not just cited, but that person is owed some form of compensation. I mean, you're using their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want to say, theater practitioners, I think, think about this a little bit more because, of course, you're always thinking about what's the best translation for me to do on stage in the way I want. Mm-hmm. Right? Do I want one that rhymes? Do I want one that doesn't rhyme? Do I want this? Do I want verse? Do I want prose? Do I want... right? So there's definitely awareness that all those things exist. Um, but Daniel Smith, who is a professor at Michigan State and a translator, a brilliant translator, Um, he, one of the things he does is literal translations of Moliere, and then Connie Congdon does the sort of adaptation. Mm -hmm. And by adaptation in this case, we don't mean she hasn't changed stuff, but she takes his literal translation and makes it into kind of fun English. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And um, this is something that, is sort of well known. So if you go to a, see a play and you're like, ah, this translation was done by know, whoever, Tony Kushner. You're like, well, what language was this play in? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> it might not have been in a language that he knew personally, which means someone did the literal translation and then he did the sort of stage version.
0: Yeah. I think um, he might've done that when he did, um, a book.
1: He, yes. Yeah. Yep. hundred percent. Uh, also mother courage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Now, um, there's another side of that. And one of the things that Professor Smith, Dr. Smith, <laughs> has said um, is that he sort of thinks of translation as a kind of triangle. Um, you can have... you can, But the thing is that this is a triangle where you can have... You want to have all three sides, but you can't. <laughs> you can only have two of the three.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? And it's sort of like... Um, there's also sense. I'm going to not quite get what they are, but in religion, um, the idea that God, you want God to be all knowing, all powerful and all merciful, I guess, Mm -hmm. completely just, but that it can only be two out of the three, right? Yeah. (laughs) If you have a God who's all knowing and all powerful, then how can we look at the world and say that he is also completely just, um, right? Yeah. If he's all powerful and just, then clearly he's not all knowing. And I'm saying he, because this is usually, you know, if you're thinking of God in these terms, that's probably how you think of God. But anyway, um, and translation is sort of similar in this way, right? That there's the, the literal meaning, um, and then there is what you said, like the sort of the connotation, right? Um, and so for example, a word, hmm trying to think of good well discipline Mm -hmm. the word discipline in english can mean either to discipline someone right so go sit in the corner for 10 minutes or it can mean like discipline meaning like you kind of you have great discipline you work every day from nine to five and you only take half an hour for lunch Mm -hmm. right (laughs) um and so that's right if you're going to, tra- if someone uses that word, I'm, of course, thinking of the way discipline and punish has yes. been translated into English. Right. Because right? in French, it's survey. The problem is surveillance doesn't have multiple connotations in the same way in English. Mm-hmm. But discipline does. Right. But that's different. So you, if you want a word, if you use the word discipline to mean I send you off to the corner for 10 minutes, but maybe you still kind of want that other connotation. Yes. If you take that word and you put it into a different language, you're not going to get both. No. (laughs) You can either have the different connotations or you can have the literal word. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's the third thing, which is um, the context, right? Mm -hmm. Which is to say the prose or the verse or whatever type of writing style is going on. Yeah. Right. So what if you, what if you can have both the literal and the connotation, then you're definitely not going to get the third thing. Mm-hmm. Right. You're not going to be able to put it in the same style that the original writer did. Um, so you, you can't have everything. <laughs> yes. But usually we fall down on the literal and the connotations that tends to be where we make our choices in translation. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yes. so uh, so somebody told uh, Yilin that the translation was being used you know, without permission and she obtained legal representation. Specifically, yes. did not take the museum to court but made the threat um there was a very successful um I guess GoFundMe campaign to to back this. Um, or go Crowd Justice Fund. I don't know if that's yeah. a different website. And then yeah. the British it's funding
1: but also right, people signing basically. Yeah. Like we all stand with this. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. So there's a huge
1: community that's kinda of like you know, you're on notice, basically. Yes.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of big poet poetry people signed yes, on to absolutely. these letters, of course. Um, and then the director of the British Museum reached out and pro- basically proposed the terms that she had previously proposed back to her. Yes. Of... Which they had, of course, turned down. Which is
1: why she obtained legal representation. Yes. But now they proposed them back to her. Yes. <laughs>
0: um. So by the time mm-hmm. this comes out. The, the translations should be appropriately credited she'll have been paid um, yep. they're going to do a spotlight on their website about the mm-hmm. poem we'll put a link in the show notes yeah. um, and then she's going to donate the, the fee to um, a workshop or a series of workshops that will support um, Sinophone poetry and be led by uh BIPOC or uh, racialized translators
1: yeah also worth pointing out um they used a lot of her translations in this exhibit um and so they're all going back up Uh, a river of crimson is special because the way that one was projected it was shown with incorrect line breaks oh yeah and so that's they're going to fix mm-hmm. that. <laughs> Which, of course, it's a poem. So yeah. line breaks matter.
0: Yes. Right. This is something I also didn't yeah. think about before I started writing poetry. Yes. Uh, and one reason that all of my poetry is unlined, or as we call it, prose poems, yeah. um, is that line breaks are terribly frightening for me, because <laughs> where you put them really matters... Yep. And until you've gotten a poem back from your editor that says, like, bad break. Right. Um, And you're like, what? But it's like, because, you know, like, you try to choose a place to break the line that means something. Like, yeah. it's not just, like, rickety-tickety-tin and then go back to the next line, rickety-tickety. You know, like... Right, right. You try to choose a place that's surprising or interesting in some way. And in this case, yes. I'm sure that she was trying to imitate... The original poem um yes a lot this of, is one of the
1: things we talk about so style
0: yeah a lot yes, of absolutely. like classical chinese poetry was written with like i want to say five or six characters to a line like there were very specific modes um mm-hmm. and i you know she died in chu jin died in 1907 so it's somewhat more modern than than that, but like not not modern. Modern, like there have been right. like significant changes to the way Chinese happens since then. So. Yes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, but yes, the idea is, of course, also the British Museum, um, didn't have. They have said that they will now create, um, but they didn't have an actual, um, process. For dealing with translations.
0: Which is insane.
1: (laughs) Yes, given, of course, let us just remind people how many things they have from around the world. Mm -hmm. So this tells you something about probably how much uncredited work
0: is on labels
1: throughout the British
0: Museum. And the thing is that this is another instance, like, the way that if these people were like, you know, a white British man translating the Odyssey, they might act differently I think because a lot of right my like I don't want to say minority languages for something like Chinese because obviously it's actually a majority <laughs> language but you know like that the people who do translation from non-western languages tend to be non-western themselves translating from a native language into English as opposed right. to English speakers who just happen to like become really I mean like there was an era of that in about like the mid 1800s when everybody in the UK was learning Sanskrit for some reason, but we've moved past that. Right. (laughs) Like we're trying to center people who aren't those people anymore.
1: It's also worth pointing out though, like translators for a long time, it was a very kind of revered position. Mm -hmm. Um, And you might, they might credit someone because there was a sort of famous translator. Mm-hmm. right but yes that's another aspect that as translation became seen as somehow not its own artistry right not its own sort of art form
0: right i um, mean we're not fitzgerald or fagels anymore right like
1: right and so it sort of sort of yeah it sort of falls out of favor um and then you might st- right another reason why people might not be credited um obviously they should be and we should appreciate that translation is in fact an art form um But yeah, absolutely. And it's it's something, of course, um, (laughs) that it's not just translation, but yeah, that the British Museum obviously has sort of a huge issue with. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to obviously they do not repatriate things, Um, we should have said that in addition to the 2004 Act allowing museums to return human remains, that might have been done partly because of the Sergei Bartman repatriation in 2002. Um, there's a 2009 ruling that opened up the possibility for the repatriation of looted Nazi artwork, meaning artwork the Nazis looted. Okay, so that that's something else they're allowed to return. <laughs> um, all that being said, you can make a you, you they can make exceptions for things. So uh, I don't know if the Horniman Museum in London was specifically. Bound by, is probably bound by the National Heritage Act, but but they nonetheless have decided to um, repatriate six artifacts looted by the British from Benin City, mm-hmm. um, now Nigeria. So um, there's definitely precedence for for repatriation, um, and we give a shout out, of course, to James Acaster's brilliant British Museum comedy riff oh yes (laughs) um on on this exact fact um but yeah it's just a sort of reminder of the ways in which the british museum not just the british museum Mm -hmm. but in this case the british museum feels entitled to these
0: things and like every case where things get repatriated always it always seems like you have to litigate everything by itself, right? Like, that you will repatriate these six things because we have evidence that the way that they were collected... Blah, 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 blah. Right. It's right. never like, oh, we should give back everything that we took from Nigeria, right? It's right. it's never going right. to be just like an en masse sort of like, we feel benevolent or we realize that we are wrong or something like that. Like, it's always... Right. And, like, I cannot tell you... I cannot explain how many pieces there are in the British Museum's vaults. Oh, that so aren't start- even seen. Yeah, right. Yeah. But, like, when you start going through, like, what's the history of the collection? And you're like, this guy who, when he died, donated, like, 40,000 pieces of coin and jewelry that he had found yeah. in various places. Like, 40,000. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. It's just boggles the mind, you know? Yes. Um. Yes. But, so, here we have somebody who fought the law and won and that's pretty cool. Yeah.
1: And hopefully that they will come up with an actual policy for dealing with translations. Yes. Um, then they just have to follow it though. Right. Right. Ideally they're not going to wait for people to realize they've been using their translations. They will be proactive. Yes. Um, but that's, you know, it's a reminder. So this is maybe a final thing on the other side of this, that in addition to the sort of aspect of entitlement, Um, that it's not just museums, that this can also exist on the part of artists. Um, So some famous examples just recently, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that one work of Andy Warhol's um, did not fairly compensate the original artist. It's the Portrait of Prince. Oh. Um, That the photographer was paid for basically one use i think <laughs> oh and um obviously warhol made a series yeah that was then published um and the artist was not compensated for a series let alone the sort of ongoing publishing i mean you know given what warhol's work sort of the way it exists in the world um and so that as well um obviously the sort of specifications of the supreme court's decision was that it only um that it only concerned that specific photo. Oh, so they de- they decided it on narrow grounds. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um but nonetheless, I mean, there is this sort of very right, it's a very
0: mm-hmm. kind of specific um It does issue ten it Legal scholars, I'm sure, would say that it indicates that the court is more willing to consider this kind of copyright claim. Yes, in general. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, which is important because, obviously, um, you know, this is how Warhol worked. <laughs> so in this case, um, Lynn Goldsmith's copyright was found to have been infringed, <laughs> um, and. Obviously, it's sort you know, it's another aspect of you got to pay for stuff, right? And so this happened to rap, what, in the late 90s? Yes, um, Where artists who were being sampled, yes, started sort of suing. And that's fair. I mean, they should all be compensated. People are like, oh, this will end, whatever. And you're like, well, no, you just can't mm-hmm. make as much money off of it. If you want to make more money off of it, you have to sample fewer people. If you don't really care, you can sample everybody and pay them. Um, but everyone should be recognized. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also want to call out Roy Lichtenstein, <laughs> um, who there's a recent documentary about him that someone brought out that was basically, um, you know, the whole point is how much he plagiarized.
0: <laughs> right. This starts to get into the it's question called, of what's an adaptation.
1: Yes. It, this is called Wham Blam. <laughs> Einstein and the the art of appropriation yes. Um, and in this case, it's because um, he you know, um, he very clearly like he and he never denied the fact that some of it's not just some of his work actually as they start to look back, a lot of his work is based directly on comics artists mm-hmm. who were never credited. So it's not just they weren't paid, they were never even credited, even though it's very, very clear, that they did the original drawing that he then sort of took and, you know, messed with mm-hmm. the same way Warhol did with photographs and so on. Um, so that's another sort of element, right? That artists, you know, who became incredibly well-known and famous and rich, <laughs> um, but did not necessarily credit the people whose art they were using, right? Um, this obviously also has sort of... Um, you know, a possible, possible reflection on the ways in which um, AI works. Yes. People are starting to sue over that as well. Oh, God. Because this it is... is, of course, trained on copywritten work. This is
0: also yeah. a thing in the ongoing Hence the writers, writer's strike. strike and the Yes, and the actor's, actors strike. Yep. And as a writer, this has been going on, you know, writing Twitter, writing Mastodon. People are very upset that their work Mm -hmm. has been scraped. Um, Basically, if you had work up on a website, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I personally, for example, I draw comics. I've drawn 450 of them or so. They're on the web. You know, Mm -hmm. my art is not amazing. It's just me scribbling. But, like, a little crawler came by and scraped up all those JPEGs and shoved them into a thing somewhere Mm -hmm. um and i would never receive compensation like i could not even prove that that's happened other people can like people who have much more um verbose and distinctive art styles have been able to produce their own art out of some of these um art machines with very little change actually um and the the same thing goes for scraping text if you wrote Mm -hmm. something i would imagine like if you have probably papers up on the web like lots of people do yep it's scraping it for information and it's Mm -hmm. it's taking writing style um Mm -hmm. and it's a real problem because like this is hours and years of people's lives right so yep to say that art is something that doesn't need to be compensated, that, like, because it's out there the way that it is, like, we should be able to endlessly replicate it, is basically what will kill art. So, because, like, who will keep going? Except right. they're truly compulsive right. among us. Right. Um, I mean,
1: obviously, in the end, um AI is not all that. I mean, it's an algorithm doing stuff and it's never going to be any better than the people telling it to do stuff. And the fact that it's worked on all this copywritten stuff, once that gets sort of, um, litigated, probably a lot of these engines will have to be shut down Mm -hmm. because, you know, you can only train stuff on things people allow you to train them on. And so, yes, all of these things are going to happen. Um, and, You know, they're all the stupid things like, oh, look, it's thinking for itself, which of course is not at all true. That's a lot of nonsense. The trick is Um, whenever
0: you see somebody writing about machine learning algorithms or this type of program, AI, is kind of a misnomer, um, just replace it in your mind with the idea, uh, a box of linear algebra, and then you will see the ways that reporters tend to personify these things. Yes, that are inappropriate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, it's just, it's an algorithm doing what it's told and it can't do things it's not told to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, of course, you know, there'll be artists who learn how to use algorithms to create amazing art, but that won't actually be AI doing it. That'll be someone with a brilliant sense of how you code something to make a specific type of art. (laughs) So it's still going to be a person. And then when it comes to other art it's still gonna be people i mean that's just mm-hmm. you know um so that but it's but it's still a huge concern from the plagiarism side obviously yeah right um so that is abs that is absolutely important yeah um yeah anyway so yes a little bit about museums this is sort of a shorter episode about museums and <laughs> the ways in which they yes.
0: <laughs> we only went over our allotted time by 26 minutes so
1: yes um yeah the ways in which they um yeah sometimes without even consciously meaning to sometimes very consciously meaning to i mean the british museum not crediting someone's translations that is a conscious choice yeah but sometimes unconsciously as well
0: they'll be um, generous
1: can influence and reinforce narratives that are very problematic yeah um and so the you know we're sort of starting to rethink these things, rethink museum practices and practices of um, you know, curator conduct Mm -hmm. and things like this. Um, Yeah, but it's definitely an ongoing conversation. I mean, of course, yes, (laughs) will the British Museum give back the elegant marbles, etc.? Will Um, they? So as we as we sort of, you know, wait to find out.
0: My favorite meme about this, and I think this will work as a closing thought, is that museum heists, should somebody propose museum heists should be like a game that you can play as a country that as long as nobody yeah. gets hurt, you sh- it should be open season to just sneak into somebody's museum. And if you can steal your stuff back, you can keep it. That, hey, like totally fair. <laughs> I love this idea. And I think like somebody yes. should make this into a film. I like this a lot better than the purge movies. It's yes. just like 90 other countries. Yes converging in uh, the uk
1: <laughs> right well james, james caster doesn't say that but in his british museum riff yes he does say he says no british people ever go to the british museum it's just full of people from other countries looking at their stuff
0: yes <laughs> and so there we are um on that note mus- yes <laughs> yes um all right you can follow us on uh, twitter at Ask a Medievalist, and you can subscribe to the Ask a Medievalist hashtag on Mastodon to get my updates. Otherwise, my Mastodon account is pretense soup, all one word, at romancelandia.club. We also have a website, which is AskMedievalist.com, and we're on Facebook, um, which is facebook.com askmedievalist. Until next time... Um, keep fighting the good fight, take on the big guys, and sometimes they'll flinch. And keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license, version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at And If you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at